Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, climate change and living in the city, where the health effects of hydrocarbon production and global trade are felt most intensely. Ben Ehrenreich will explain. Also, Paris isn't the only place where a cathedral of Notre Dame is in ruins and awaiting rebuilding. There's another Notre Dame in Haiti, destroyed in the earthquake of 2010. Amy Willens has been thinking about that and about reparations for Haiti from France. But first, the new voters of 2020. We've been focusing mostly on the candidates who want to challenge Trump, but we also need to consider the voters and the changes in the electorate since 2016. For that, we turn to Steve Phillips. He's a civil rights lawyer and the founder of Democracy in Color, an organization dedicated to race politics and the new American majority. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation. We reach him today in San Francisco. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation by saying that three things conspired to make the 2016 election a perfect storm. Let's remind our listeners that the election was determined by only 78,000 votes in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. What do we need to know about that perfect storm? Well, the very first thing is to not forget and to not be disempowered by the fact that Clinton got three million more votes in the country. This president is so unapologetic and destructive that we can feel like he has majority support, but he did not have majority support. So he lost by three million votes. And then even in those three states where he won the, the Electoral College, he did not get the majority of vote. And so what happened in those states is you had the progressive vote splinter, and there were big increases for Jill Stein and for Gary Johnson. Jill Stein's increase in Michigan was greater than the margin by which Trump won in Michigan. And then you had a dramatic drop in the black vote across all three states as well. Your work focuses on the changes in the makeup of the electorate since 2016. You argue that these now give a clear electoral advantage to the Democrats. Mostly, the country continues to get browner, but how significant is that going to be for the voting pool in 2020? The Constellation of Foundations did a report, Center for American Progress, Brookings, et cetera, and they looked at the demographic changes in the voting population since 2016, looking to 2020. 2020 will be the most diverse electorate ever. If 2016 is an exact replay with with all the groups voting at the same rates and the same partisan preferences, Democrats will win just on the composition the electorate has changed enough in those three states, as well as the rest of the country, to flip those states to the Democrat. 
That's without doing anything. If we just do it all over again, Democrats would win because the country is that much more diverse. On top of that, there are large numbers of African-Americans, Latinos, in particular in these different states, who could be mobilized. We'll have four years of people who were not 18 at the time of the vote um, in 2016. They're all now coming to the electorate. So the electorate is going to be that much more favorable than it was uh, in 2016. Now, what about all the Republican efforts at vote suppression? Won't they continue to hurt Democrats next year and maybe even hurt more? Well, that's why they do it, because they can actually count oftentimes better than Democrats. (laughs) They know what these numbers look like. We saw that happen in 2018 in Georgia in particular. And so the, the Republicans will definitely be trying to continue their voter suppression efforts. What bodes better for the Democrats this time is that one of the leading states for voter suppression in 2016 was Wisconsin, led by uh, Republican Governor Scott Walker, and then Michigan uh, as well, um, which was led by Republican Governor, was doing everything they could to block people from voting. Both of those states now have Democratic governors who won in 2018. They have African-American lieutenant governors in those states. So the apparatus of the government now will be put in place of actually trying to get people to vote rather than trying to block them to vote. And so that bodes even more favorable uh, for Democrats. And let's just remember that Michigan's electoral votes went to Trump only because he got 11,000 more votes than Hillary Clinton. And in Wisconsin, 22,000 votes. If we have a replay, that's the number of votes that have to switch in order for the Electoral College to go in the opposite direction. So we've been talking here about Michigan and Wisconsin. Are there red states or purple states from 2016 that could go Democratic next year because of these population changes? Yes, very much so. And also on top of that, you have the results from 2018. Yeah where there was significant infrastructure built, people registered, mobilized, organized, particularly in Georgia and Florida, and also in Arizona. And so those three states are all trending Democratic. And so if there's significant effort to build upon what was done in 2018 and to register and increase and mobilize voters in those states, then all three of those states are winnable states. And then also there was North Carolina's in the mix, which has a, a, believe a trifecta this coming year, presidential battleground, gubernatorial, and a competitive Senate race. So all of those states, and those states are really more, from a future standpoint, even more promising, because the trends are very much accelerated there in terms of how diverse they're becoming, consequence of the, the Puerto Rico um, crisis. People moving to Florida, so large numbers of Puerto Ricans in that state, making it even more diverse. So between consolidating the Rust Belt and investing in the Sun Belt, the numbers exist. The Democratic vote can be consolidated and mobilized. We haven't yet talked about white people. Now, a clear majority of white people have been voting Republican for decades, especially white men, especially older white men. And there's that horrible statistic from 2016 Fifty-three percent of white women voted for Trump. Do you see any chance of changing some of that? Yes. 2018, there were a number of white women, particularly suburban white women, who had finally had enough of Trump. And so he, the, the Republicans had a 10-point advantage in the 2016 election among white women. But in the 2018 election, 
it was a dead, a dead, dead heat. So some of those uh, Republican white women cannot put up with this any longer. And so some of them are gettable in terms of being able to put together our coalition. I mean, it is important to realize that that is the population, this notion about trying to get the conservative white male working class, which is what too many people are obsessed about. There's very little data that there is possible to make headway beyond the ones who are already with us except among those who may have defected third and fourth parties. So we should be able to actually try to attract those folks back. But it's really, in terms of the white vote, the suburban white Republican women who are the most susceptible to being won over. And we're talking specifically here about white college-educated women are the ones who shifted from Republican to Democratic in the 2018 congressional elections. Is that right? Yes, the college educated is the grouping, uh, and that's the point. One point I'm trying to make in the article too, and then you know, Ron Brownstein talks about this a lot. Is that there's fundamentally a struggle within this country. It's not any accident that Trump was elected after the first black president. There's a coalition of transformation, which is what we call the Obama coalition, and Brownstein calls a coalition of restoration, which is to make America a great crowd, <laughs> make great again crowd. Back when we were segregated and women were second class citizens, so that's the fundamental battle and divide, and fortunately, the coalition of transformation is larger and gets bigger with the increasing diversity. Every single day in this country, there's 7,000 more people of color out of the population versus 1,000 whites. So the trend is irreversible at this point, and so I just think it's important that we hold that knowledge and carry ourselves with the confidence that we do our work right, we Democrats should win, and we should not be trying to sacrifice our values at this altar of electability, that somehow um, we're in a one-down position and we have to, to you know, cast about to try to get somebody who can beat Trump. The numbers are in our favor. If we organize, mobilize, and inspire, he should be defeated. Well, let's just talk for a minute or two about the candidates, because, of course, the candidates do matter. Hillary, there's this other horrible statistic, got something like 5 million fewer votes than Obama had four years earlier, and a lot of those were African-American votes. We we can't assume that every, everybody who belongs demographically in the Democratic Coalition of Transformation is going to show up at the ballot box. We learned in 2016 that's not the case. Do you want to say anything about the candidates naming names about who seems more focused on turning out the Coalition of Transformation? Yes. And so it is a question of who can inspire, represent, tap, and unleash that energy and that sentiment. The yeah. candidates who are most in the Obama mold are clearly Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Interestingly, Elizabeth Warren, she did very well at the She the People Summit, the Women of Color Summit. She has found a language and a voice that is also speaking to and resonating with, with voters of color. So at the moment, I would look at those three as the most strong in terms of being able to inspire and galvanize that coalition. Steve Phillips, you can read his illuminating article. It's called The President is Not the Front Runner at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Now it's time to talk about climate change and living in the city, in particular, a city called commerce. Ben Ehrenreich has a report. He writes about climate change for the nation, and he's the author most recently of The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. 
We reached him today out in the desert north of Joshua Tree. Ben Ehrenreich, welcome back. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Well, you open your most recent report on climate change for the nation in an unlikely place, a working-class city southeast of L.A. called Commerce. I would have said it's in the belly of the beast, but the activists you talk to there don't like that phrase. Uh, tell us about Commerce California. Yeah, I think, you know, when we, we tend to think of, of places in which you can see the effects of the fossil economy and climate change. You might think of Mozambique, you might think of Bangladesh, you might think of Haiti, you might think of Central America or the Lake Chad Basin in Africa. But I think what struck me um, on thinking about commerce, um, which is in Southeast LA and is a heavily industrial community, was how it's very much been in the crosshairs of the fossil economy for really for generations now. It and the communities around it, places like um, like Southgate, like Vernon, are residential areas, mainly mainly working class, mainly Latino, mainly immigrant, but that have been largely are not thought of by city and, and county and state planners in terms of who lives there, but ter- solely in terms of their in- industrial um, use. And mainly that has to do, in the case of, of commerce, with transportation. Commerce is right off the 710. There's a big Union Pacific rail yard there. There's another uh, BNSF rail yard right up the street. Um, and those are intermodal yards where the containers that come in by the hundreds of thousands into the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach are put onto trucks, which go up the 710 freeway to those intermodal yards where they're then put onto trains and brought out into the rest of the country. Let me Um, ask you, what's in the containers? Everything, all the junk that, uh, that, that we love to buy. I'm actually, I, I defined a place with, uh, with good cell phone reception. I'm sitting in front of a, a Walmart on Highway 62 right now. <laughs> okay. and probably everything in that store, or if not everything, a lot of it, came in on, on containers from factories in Asia. This is sort of how our, our economy works. There's, there's cheap labor overseas, and there is cheap fuel, which allows all of these goods to be shipped, uh, you know, burning diesel fuel into our ports, where it's then put onto trucks and onto trains, also burning diesel fuel, and then shipped around the country. From the car you're driving to the parts that are used to replace the parts in the car you're driving to the clothing you may be wearing to, you know, the things you cook with and the things that you're cooking, a lot of this stuff is coming through the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. I think L.A. and Long Beach process 40% of the container traffic coming into the U.S. and the whole country, just an enormous quantity of goods. Now, we're Um, told told that these are, you know, the basis of the economy of much of Southeast L.A. and that these are crucial to the lives of the working class people whose jobs are centered around the containers and moving the containers out to America's other Walmarts. How do these containers connect to the carbon economy and to the capital economy? Those containers got to move and they're moved only with diesel fuel. Um, And the fact that we have this entire economy which is entirely reliant on goods moving so easily and cheaply. All of this is inconceivable without massive use of, of fossil fuels. You know, I, th- I think one of the things that makes commerce and communities like it really interesting is that when we use the buzzwords that economists like to use and that have entered, you know, all of our skulls um, 
through a sort of process of media osmosis, words like growth, which we, yeah. we are, are trained to assume is a good thing. You know, what growth means, economic growth means, it means those containers moving around. It means people buying and selling. It, mean, it means retail sales going up at the Walmart. It means goods making it into people's homes and moving around the country. This is the economic model that we work with, that, that growth is this sort of unquestionable good. But what it means for, you know, very directly for communities like commerce and the communities around it, and slightly less directly for all of us in terms of climate change, is shortened lifespans, that the possibilities of, of people's lives are, are foreclosed by maladies that could otherwise be avoided, things like asthma, things like higher rates of cancer, that communities like commerce have been dealing with for generations. You know, I, I have a, a pet peeve ab about the diesel engines on the trains. It's a, it's a small thing, but they don't shut off the diesel engines in those train yards. And the diesel engines produce a tremendous amount of air pollution, which goes all over Southern California. But, of course, most intensely on the people who live in commerce. Yeah, I, I think the the calculation of the railroads is that it is cheaper to leave their engines running all the time than to shut them off and start them up again. So in those rail yards, there are locomotives idling. And if you've ever been to Commerce or the communities around it, you know some of those railroads are really right up against people's backyards. So you can have locomotives just a few feet from yards in which kids are playing, which means huge amounts of technical terms, particulate matter. But in LA, we all we all know it. It's the you know the black gunk that gathers on your on your windows on your window cells. It's the stuff that makes it hard to breathe in LA. It's the stuff that makes the the air so uh, so gummy and and foul, and it uh, you know has a a severe effect on people's health and lifespans. So when you went to Commerce California, you talked to activists in a group called East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. First of all, what is the East Yard? East Yard is the railroad yard, the Union Pacific Yard, um, which is in the city of Commerce. And it's one of these intermodal yards. And it's, it has a, a huge amount of real, real estate. And uh, a lot of people are not aware of the extraordinary like authority and independence that the railroads won in the American West. So that, you know, they have their own police forces. Um, they, have, they have extraordinary amounts of power, both financial and, and institutional. And tell us about the, the uh, East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. What kind of group is this? What are the pe who are the people? What are they like? So it's a small grassroots group. I've, I've known the, uh, the founder for, for many years. They're now in the hands of a super dynamic uh, director named Mark Lopez. And East Yard has, from a, an absolutely grassroots community level, been trying to organize people in the neighborhood, basically to, you know, on... on matters that are their life and death there um, on trying to reduce the amount of pollution that is pumped into their air. And this is an extremely basic kind of organizing, and it's a kind of organizing that's, that's proved absolutely necessary because at every level of government, until residents in communities like Commerce start making a lot of noise and start you know, uh, showing up at meetings and insisting that they are, be taken account of, 
nobody takes account of them at all um, at the local level, at the county level, um, at the at the state level, at every level of government, whether it's the railroads uh, or the ports or the trucking companies um, or the the big polluting industries. Nobody is thinking much about the the people and the ways of the of these industries. They're just thinking about keeping the money flowing. So it's you know over the years, uh, East Yard has through consistent organizing by being there by uh, demanding that their voices be heard has become a, a, enough of a player that you know that all of these local planning agencies know they have to take them into account and um, and, and what what do they uh, propose about dealing with the the immediate crisis of, of air pollution and and the longer term issues of the carbon-based economy there have been a number of fronts that they've been working on over the years. Uh, one has been working on issues ex- exactly like some of the things we've been talking about in terms of locomotives idling in the in the yards. Another has been fighting the expansion of the 710, which has been a you know a big push by all parts of, of local government for years now to you know have less less trucks and less diesel trucks going through their neighborhoods. You know, but they're also working on on the kind of issues that we associate with uh, with very different neighborhoods, like trying to get bicycle paths in and trying to get green space in. And I think the bigger picture for, you know, which was interesting and exciting to talk to Mark Lopez about was things like, you know, talking about energy independence and his sort of constant insistence that whatever plans people come up with to deal with to deal with climate change, whether it's the Green New Deal or, or we call it something else or it's something else entirely, that it not just be a deal made between corporations and government, because that kind of deal has been made for, for many generations in, that com- in, in, in this country and that kind of deal, not just in this country, and that kind of deal always leaves people like the people in commerce out. It always you know, completely bulldozes over communities of color, immigrants, working class communities. And you know, one of the things that he talks about is is energy independence and and and, and communities taking control of their own of their own energy resources. As, as he put it, there's a in Wilmington, which is not just outside of the area that they work in, which is where the big refineries in. You know, people always joke that you get a job in the refineries so that you can move out of the refi- out of Wilmington, so you can move far away from them. Um, and people should be able to stay with their where they are without you know having to risk their lives and their children's lives to do so. Um, and for that to happen, people are, people who live in these places have to be taken into account. Seems like the combination of the port of L.A. and the transportation hub would uh, would make for a uniquely bad combination uh, in terms of local pollution. Is there anything like Southeast L.A. anywhere else in the United States? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, you know, I think L.A. is the uh, as as a port is you know, like I said, the the biggest one. But I think places like the Houston area. Um, where there's both a major port and um, is a major hub in the oil industry and the refining industry faces similar similar issues. There was a just I guess it was now about two weeks ago there was a fire in one of the refineries there, which uh, people were told for I believe it was for more than a week to not leave their homes because there were talk you know deadly levels of benzene in the air re- released as a result of this accident in one of the refineries. You know, so I think there there are neighborhoods like commerce scattered in industrial areas all over the country, and I think all of them share this kind of 
and I hesitate to use this word, but privileged view of how our economy works and doesn't work. You know, if you if you live in a place like commerce, you have an understanding of the functioning of the fossil economy that many of our you know members of the pundit class and policymakers, you know, the most expensive elite educations can't come close to. You have no choice but to understand how the system works. Ben Ehrenreich, his article for The Nation is titled The Road to Climate Catastrophe Runs Through a City Called Commerce. But if we listen carefully, the solutions to the climate crisis also come from commerce. You can read it at thenation.com. Ben, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, It's always a pleasure, John. Paris isn't the only place where a cathedral of Notre Dame is in ruins and awaiting rebuilding. There's another Notre Dame in Haiti, destroyed in the earthquake of 2010. Amy Willens has been thinking about that. She's been reporting on Haiti for 30 years, most recently in her award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She was also a Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Remind us, first of all, why we care about Haiti, we on the left, including those of us who've never been there. We on the left care about Haiti, and we, all of us, should care about Haiti because it was the first black republic ever established on the globe. It had the only successful slave revolution, which turned into a political entity in the end, the Republic of Haiti. And and after that, after... 1804, when Haiti declared its independence, France required that Haiti pay an indemnity, reparations. For what? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Usually the victor in a war, which was Haiti, demands reparations or indemnities or tribute from the loser nation. But in this case, France, the loser nation, demanded money from Haiti For many things, for its loss of property during the revolution, uh, the property being Haitian slaves, i.e. the people who won the revolution, but also uh, plantations, uh, produce, etc. And the Haitians were willing to pay because they had just come through a very long war of attrition. And I think they didn't feel at the time that they were capable of waging another one. France was then threatening to re-enslave the Haitians to also make Haiti a pariah nation in terms of trade and the world economy. France required that Haiti pay how much? Well, over more than a century, Haiti paid what would be in today's dollars about $21 billion. And when did they finish their reparations? I think it was 1948. So France is rich, Haiti is poor, Is there a relationship between these two facts? I'm just laughing to myself because, of course, those reparations at the time when it was basically a baby nation, Haiti, it was just begun. And then these things were slapped on them, which they really had to pay. They were losing money while France was making money from them. And, of course, a lot of French wealth was originally based on this incredibly productive work camp That was Haiti, this slave economy where they worked their slaves to death for the most part and just took the incredible profits from the sugar economy there. So let's talk about the ruined Cathedral of Notre Dame in Haiti. What did it look like? 
what does it look like now? It looked like it was made out of confectioner sugar. And and the way it looks now, you think it might have been. It was made out of reinforced concrete, but you would never have thought something so soundingly brutalist would have been turned into this lacy, beautiful, soaring, very European with a slightly Caribbean touch to it. Cathedral that was the highest building in Port-au-Prince forever and ever, really, until the day it fell, I think. It was it was the second highest building by then. And what does it look like now? It's a skeletal remains with, uh, you can see still the rosette windows. It was designed by a French architect, um, and they started building in 1883. So it has some of that era in its construction and many, many rosette windows. But it's it's basically fell to the ground. There are a couple of walls remaining. We're talking now about the possibility of rebuilding this ruined Notre Dame. Do Haitians really want a cathedral? Isn't this building more about the power of Frenchness and the power of the Catholic Church? What what does it mean to them? It's funny because, of course, as a symbol, it was built by the Catholic Church with Catholic Church and uh, congregational monies when Haitians had some money to give for that kind of a cause. So it was a very kind of French church, but it was inhabited by the Haitian people of Port-au-Prince. And it was an important place that they always say about Haitians that they're 100 percent voodoo and 99 percent Catholic. And that's really true. There's a lot of still uh, belief in the voodoo pantheon. But still, people go to Catholic Church for baptism and First Communion and for Mass often. It's a fairly religious community still. Um, And I think for the Catholic Church now in Haiti, it's besieged by Protestant missionaries, most of them from the United States, and by the, the Mormons also have made great inroads, and they build churches like crazy. There are churches dotting the Haitian countryside, little tiny things built by these missionaries. And I think the Catholic Church feels that one of the things it can do is have one of these giant monuments to itself. And it it was behind, in part, the idea of rebuilding this Notre Dame. And this Notre Dame in Port-au-Prince is not just a place where the Catholic Church celebrates its own power. It's played a different kind of political role at times. It was a community gathering place. So it was a place for Catholic ritual. But also it played a role in the 1980s when liberation theology was so important. It played a role as a sort of a place where people who believed in the small church, the little church, as it was called in Haiti, which was the Church of Liberation Theology, would go to protest the the role of the Catholic Church in supporting the government and the elite. In the mid-1980s, when the Duvalier regime had just fallen and everything was very confused and Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide was rising up uh, as a political figure, the Catholic Church decided it had had enough of him and they decided to move him from his inner-city parish to a more outlying place. And the young people who supported him said, ah, no, we're not having this. And they occupied the cathedral. They marched in and they sat down right in front of the altar and they said, we're having a hunger strike. A hunger strike? Uh, Unheard of in Haiti. 
because hunger in Haiti is the biggest enemy. Anytime you can eat, you eat. You don't say, no, I'm foregoing food for a cause. It just doesn't happen. So it was a very major, incredible thing. And then the church began to fill up and fill up and fill up. I was there. And eventually the hierarchy caved into these young people and the really large crowds who had gathered in the cathedral. And at the end, Aristide appeared, this teeny little person with big glasses on and his white robes. And he escorted the young people out and he got to stay in his parish for a while. All was not bliss after, but it was still a very big moment. And what would it mean today in Haiti to rebuild this place? You know, I don't know. There could be all sorts of ways to deal with the area that would be maybe more Haitian to my mind than a big Catholic cathedral. There's already a little transitory cathedral, they call it, which is um, a small building built near the ruins of the old cathedral. So that's a place for the Catholics to go if they want. But, you know, Haitians are really, they love the the pomp and circumstance of the cathedral. They're used to it. It was their place. They remember it. It's in the national memory. And I think it would serve just as rebuilding a national palace, even though Duvalier's, you know, reigned from there. It means something to have your national symbols, especially for this country that's such a special nation. So I think there could be something done. And in fact, there have been some attempts to do something to rebuild this this, uh, monument. Before we talk about the proposals, I want to ask, doesn't Haiti have bigger problems than rebuilding this French Gothic cathedral? Yes, as I've uh, been discussing recently, it has a lot more problems that need um, money flowing toward them than the building of a cathedral, for instance. Basic nutrition, health care, energy infrastructure, infrastructure itself, sanitation, Uh, security, personal security in the street, law and order administered in a decent way or just administered. I mean, there's nothing happening now. And so when I'm talking about security, the situation in the Haitian street right now is very dangerous. There's a lot with the vacuum in power, although there is a president, not much is done by the president. And so there's this big vacuum of power and there the narco gangs and, and just little gangs Uh, have walked into this space and there's a lot of killing going on in the streets when there are protests against the Haitian government because there's no gas in Haiti anymore. They fire sometimes on the the people who are protesting. There have been, I think, that Human Rights Watch is asking for the Haitian government to explain the 30 deaths in the crowd, uh, in the crowds of protesters in recent months. In addition, when there's no gas, You can't get to a hospital. You can't get to a job if you're lucky enough to have a job. You can't get to the market to buy food. So everything has come to kind of a grinding halt there. So, yeah, sure, of course, Haiti has bigger problems than rebuilding the cathedral. So tell us about the proposals for a new Notre Dame in Haiti. In 2012, this Miami, uh, impressive Miami kind of entrepreneur, uh, combined with the person who was the bishop of Port- the Archbishop of Port-au-Prince at the time, and the two of them got together and they organized a competition for uh, a design for a new cathedral. And that competition was won by a Puerto Rican group run by a man, an architect named Segundo Cardona. 
and he and his team made a beautiful design uh, that incorporates the old parts of the church that are still standing and the idea of the old church while being a kind of a more broad meeting place too. And then uh, Senor Cardona came to Haiti two years later to show the beautiful model they had built for the cathedral, and he arrives. And first of all, the Haitian customs won't let the church in, the little church, the model. And then when he finally manages to, like, pull it from the hands of customs and get into town, he goes to this transitory cathedral, and he's like, oh, my gosh, they've kind of built something already. I'll never, I'll never get this built. And he was so disheartened. And I do think that often in Haiti, something that's built as transitory ends up being final because it was cheaper, easier, and there it is. And then who's going to have the energy and the fundraising ability to build a new one? And meanwhile, the uh, archbishop who wanted the new cathedral and the Miami entrepreneur who was pushing for it have both died. Oh. What's the status today of this new cathedral? Have they raised some of the money? Have they started to break ground? Not a single penny <laughs> has been raised since the uh, monies were dispersed for the design. And uh, no ground has been broken. Although you wouldn't know no ground has been broken since the ground around the cathedral is still so broken from the earthquake. Well, let's go back to the indemnity France required that Haiti pay in exchange for getting recognition of its independence you have a modest proposal about paying for the rebuilding of the ruined Cathedral of Notre Dame in Haiti. From the um, 19th to the 20th century, France demanded that Haiti pay this huge indemnity or reparation to France of $21 billion. And my modest proposal is to take some of that back in some form for Haiti to rebuild the cathedral among other things. But one of the interesting things is that these big billionaires in France have offered so much money to rebuild Notre Dame de Paris, and uh, they've offered an awful lot of money, maybe some of that, which, you know, all French money sort of goes back to the days of the colony, could go to Haiti instead of just to the spire for Notre Dame. France should help pay for the rebuilding of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Haiti as partial reparations for the indemnity they forced Haiti to pay for its independence. Amy Willens wrote about rebuilding the Haitian Notre Dame for the Atlantic.com. It's a terrific piece. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.